This morning's reading is from Matthew chapter 9 and can be found on page 974 of the Church Bibles. Matthew chapter 9, beginning to read at verse 18. While he, Jesus, was saying this, a ruler came and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her, and she will live. Jesus got up and went with him, and so did his disciples. Just then, a woman who had been subject to bleeding for twelve years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, If I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed from that moment. When Jesus entered the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd, he said, Go away. The girl is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand, and she got up. News of this spread throughout all that region. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him, and he asked them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Then he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith will it be done to you. And their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, See that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. While they were going out, A man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, It is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we begin now, I'll lead us in a prayer. Ephesians 5 says this, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you so much for Christ's work in the church. Thank you, Father, that he gave himself up for her. And not only that, our Father, that he washes her now with his word. And we pray, our Father, that as we listen to this word this morning, you would give us understanding, that you would give us hearts that are teachable and lives that wish to apply what we hear, so that, Father, we may be this church a church which Ephesians 5 tells us is being cleansed to be holy, 
without stain, wrinkle, or any other blemish. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my greatest heroes is Galileo. Now, I know this is going to make me sound a bit like a geek, but um, when I read his work, I was so inspired that I asked Claire to buy me a telescope for our wedding anniversary. In fact, it was our 10th wedding anniversary, and um, we went on holiday for a whole week, and I spent every night of that week looking out into, into the sky through the telescope. Uh, Claire had a great time. <laughs> now, um, why is he my hero? Well, because Galileo's work brought a complete change in how people saw the universe. He, he brought about what people call a paradigm shift. Now, a paradigm shift is something that changes our very foundational beliefs so that we cannot see this, the world the same way again. Now, how did he do that? Well, I know you're dying to hear. In um, 1609, Galileo produced one of the first telescopes. It was the first instrument that could magnify objects up to 20 times. And a year after he made the tel telescope, he published a book called The Starry Messenger, which recorded some of his observations. And the book changed everything. See, up until then, most people assumed that the heavens were perfect and everything orbited the earth. But in the book, he disproved that. He observed craters on the moon. I mean, we assume the craters on the moon, but people didn't know that at that time. Uh, people thought that the moon was perfectly spherical and uh, it was perfect. He also observed moons around Jupiter called the Galileo moons, obviously not back then, but named after him, and he noticed that they were uh, orbiting Jupiter and not the Earth. See, when this was discovered, it changed everything. It was a paradigm shift. No one could look at the universe the same way again. Now, the events recorded in our passage this morning give us another example of a paradigm shift. See, Matthew is showing us that the kingdom that Jesus brings demands a complete change of perspective. It changes the universe. We cannot look at reality the same way again. Now, I know to many of us in our Western culture, the events of Jesus are not considered a paradigm shift. Uh, we think often that they belong to a previous age when people needed religion in their lives. But now we've kind of moved on from those things. And it's not that those events haven't got anything to say. We can learn morals, there are good examples, but it's not world-changing. But Matthew wants to convince us otherwise. He shows us that Jesus' ministry cannot be reduced like that. It cannot be boiled down to some ethical instructions. It is a paradigm shift. It is world-changing news. Now, how does Matthew show us this? Well, it's important to ask this week how these miracles connect with Jesus' teaching from last week. See, at the end of last week's passage, the disciples of John the Baptist come to Jesus and they ask, why did Jesus' disciples not fast? Uh, Jesus, is, Jesus and his disciples are, are not behaving how you would expect a religious teacher to behave. And Jesus gives us this picture of new wine being poured into old wineskins. See, at the time, Clive uh, mentioned this last week, if you fermented wine, you would put it in a leather bottle and it would expand during fermentation. And if you did that with old bottles where the leather was dry and brittle, then it would burst. 
Now, back at university, I learned this the hard way. Um, I tried to do some home brewing uh, with my flatmates. It was horrible. But um, we tried to brew cider. Not in leather, obviously, but in glass bottles. But we hadn't realized that um, when you're brewing cider, you need to leave a little gap in the top of the bottle for the kind of fermentation process. I know you probably all know that, uh, but we didn't. And so you can guess what happened. One morning we came downstairs and the whole house smelt like a brewery. We opened the cupboard door and the bottles had exploded. And Jesus says that he is like that. He doesn't fit with the old ways of thinking, the old paradigms. He is new. You can't limit him to your expectations. And we read in verse 18 that it's while he is teaching these things that this ruler comes to him and all these miracles follow. In other words, these miracles are connected to what Jesus has been teaching. They show us that Jesus is a new wine. He's a new paradigm. If you turn over to chapter 11, verse 3, you'll see that um, John the Baptist gets another mention. He sends messengers to Jesus, and they ask him, are you the one? Now, we don't know exactly why, but for some reason, John the Baptist doesn't see Jesus um, as he is. He's not quite as he expected. And so he asks this question, are we meant to expect someone else? And Jesus' answer is there in verse 5. The blind, receive light, uh, the, sorry, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and good news is preached to the poor. Do you recognize where those things come from? It's the events of chapter 9. It's the miracles we're looking at today. So this whole section back in chapter 9 is teaching us that Jesus is new wine. He is totally different to what we in our world might expect and we see that in three ways. Uh, first of all, uh, you'll see on the handouts, we're going to look at Jesus' kingdom is unlike any other. Jesus' kingdom is received by faith, and Jesus' kingdom is rejected by some. First of all, then, Jesus' kingdom is unlike any other. When you compare the way Matthew records these miracles um, with the other gospel writers, it's very, very brief. He writes what the other gospel writers do but he compresses it into a third of the words. It's almost like Matthew wants to present these miracles in rapid fire, one example after another of why Jesus' kingdom is unlike any other. So in verse 18, a, a ruler comes to Jesus. This ruler, this leader, he's used to having people under his authority doing what he demands. But now he's humbled. He kneels before Jesus. Why? Well, his daughter has just died. It's the most tragic situation. For many of us, one of the worst scenarios we can imagine. He has lost his daughter. Despite him being a man of influence, in the face of death, he is powerless. But he sees something different in Jesus. He sees a power he has never encountered. And he says to Jesus, come, put your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus does exactly that. We read in verse 25, after the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand, and she got up. It's so brief, isn't it? It's so brief that we can almost miss the significance. 
Jesus is reversing death. Death is one of the greatest enemies we face. It consumes, but it's never satisfied. It has little regard for power, for wealth, for age. Everyone succumbs to its demands eventually. And yet, with a grasp of the hand, Jesus shows that he can reverse death as easily as waking someone from sleep. In fact, I was working myself on this text um, just before I took a funeral last week, and I had to ask myself, do I really get this? I, I thought to myself, as I stood there next to the coffin in front of the mourners, do I really get that Jesus has conquered this? That one day funerals will be a thing of the past? If that wasn't dramatic enough, between the miracle in verse 20, we meet a woman who has been bleeding for 12 years. Now, we don't know exactly what she was suffering, except that it was a discharge of blood. And it doesn't take much imagination to know what that probably meant for her. The treatment she would have undertook, the pain, the embarrassment of it. But even more than that, under the law, a woman with bleeding like this would have been considered unclean outside the community. So here is a woman who has suffered day after day, week after week, month after month, for 12 long years. And yet, with a word, Jesus makes her well. Again, it's easy, isn't it, to miss the significance. Matthew only covers this miracle in one sentence. But what are a few words to us mean a complete transformation to her? We could go on. Jesus gave sight to two blind men. He casts a demon out of a man who's mute, so he speaks. But the point is made, isn't it, already, that Jesus is not like the old system. He is new wine. Yes, there were prophets before who did miracles. Yes, there were religious teachers. But nothing like this. Jesus is not more of the same. His kingdom is unlike anything else. It ends death. It ends suffering. Uh, the crowd see this. Um, it's why they say in verse 33, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. I hinted at this at the beginning, but our culture is, uh, has an intriguing understanding of Jesus. Um, many today wouldn't reject Jesus outright. Uh, we recognize that he's got some things to offer to our contemporary world, moral teaching, ethical guidance, but often it stops there. But if that's all we understand of Jesus, we, we miss the big point. Imagine you went home today, and for some reason, you'd been bought a new car. You're handed the keys. But rather than get in the car, start the engine, take the car for a drive, you get fixated on the key fob. It's one of those key fobs, I've got one, it's pretty cool, where the key flicks out when you press the button. Has anyone got one of those? They're great, aren't they? And you look at it, you press the button a few times, you flick it out, and you think it's kind of neat. But then you get a bit bored, you put it down. You didn't realize it was ever connected to a car. And it's very easy to do the equivalent with Jesus. We assume we know what he's about. He's a religious teacher. And of course that's true to some extent. But it's like 
just playing with a key fob. See, Jesus is new wine. He doesn't just come as a guide or teacher. He's not more of the same. He comes with a new kingdom, a new world, where death and suffering and pain will be destroyed once and for all. I wonder, do we understand that? Until we understand that, we've not really understood Jesus at all. Matthew shows us then that Jesus' kingdom is a paradigm shift. He's unlike any other. And secondly, on your handouts, he shows us that we benefit from his kingdom by faith. Now, faith is uh, just another word for belief. Um, Faith means taking Jesus at his word. When Jesus, Jesus says something, faith is the response that says, yes, I believe. And throughout this section, Matthew shows us what faith looks like. Uh, The ruler whose daughter dies, he has nothing to offer. He has no hope in his own resources. He just believes that Jesus can help. Uh, The woman with her bleeding, she shows similar faith. She says in verse 21, if only I touch his cloak, I will be healed. I mean, she sees that Jesus has great power and believes that he can help her. And Jesus commends her on that faith in verse 22. He says, Jesus turned to her and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman's healed from that moment. Now notice how Jesus puts things there. He says, your faith has healed you. Now, this is very important to get. It doesn't mean that faith is a work. It doesn't mean that the woman deserves healing because she's offered enough faith. It's not that idea. But Jesus is highlighting to us the right response. Because she believed in Jesus, she benefited from what he came to give. Uh, The point's made again with the blind men in verse 29. Uh, It says there, Then he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith it will be done to you. It's a very interesting wording, isn't it? Again, not because they've brought anything. It's not a transaction where Jesus is paying back for, for their faith, but it's showing us that they benefit from Jesus by trusting in him. And Matthew records these responses to us to say to us, look, if you want to benefit from Jesus' kingdom, you just need to believe Jesus at his word. There are different ways we could benefit from a kingdom. I know some of you are in the process of applying for or have applied for UK citizenship. And um, I was researching this week how to become a member of the United Kingdom. Now, first, you have to be 18 or over of good character. You need to promise that you'll continue to live in the UK. You need to be in the UK for five years. You need to meet the knowledge of English test. Uh, you need to meet the life in the UK requirements. You need to meet the residential, uh, residency, re- residency requirement. Uh, then I looked into what the life in the UK requirements were, and apparently you need to complete a test, which means reading and learning a 200-page book of questions like this. Now, I'm going to ask you to see how you did. I didn't do very well. Now, who, um, here's one of the questions. Who appoints life peers? If you are in the service earlier, keep stum. Who appoints life peers? No, it's the monarch. Uh, When is St. David's Day? First of March, March. well done. 
I didn't get that right. Um, who built the Tower of London? William the Conqueror. Well done. You, um, you, lots of you could probably stay, but I couldn't. So um, <laughs> I failed miserably. Well, it seems that the, the people in the first century expected the kind of religious equivalent of the entry test to God's kingdom. See, remember last week, we, we saw that the people were shocked that Jesus was mixing with sinners. They expected God's Messiah to come for the morally upright or those who showed religious devotion. But Jesus is new wine. He's a paradigm shift. What counts in Jesus' kingdom is that you believe the king at his word. Jesus doesn't want a stack of religious practice. He wants people who love him, who believe him. I think this is one of the most misunderstood ideas about Christianity in our culture. See, almost in every conversation I have with someone who's not a Christian, even this week I had this conversation, they will highlight to me some shortcomings of Christians as evidence against the faith. As if kind of Christians not meeting the moral standard means that the faith cannot be true. Now, of course, they're right to some extent. Hypocrisy is wrong. Uh, Jesus has strong words to say to those who pretend to be his followers, but don't live as he teaches. But often, I think, it's a fundamental misunderstanding of the Christian faith. See, Christians aren't morally superior. They have nothing to boast about in themselves. They are broken, like the people in this chapter. Being a Christian is about faith. It's taking Jesus at his word. And if we do that, we're part of Jesus' kingdom. I, I said earlier that the, throughout this whole section that Matthew's kind of stripped back the details. Uh, everything is a brief, slimmed-down version of what other Gospels record. But interestingly, when it comes to the blind men, Matthew includes one extra detail something that's not mentioned in the other Gospels. It's the question in verse 28. When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him, and he asked them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Now, why does Jesus ask this? Um, it's not for Jesus' sake, is it? He knows already what's in their hearts. It's not for Jesus' sake. It's for their sake. He wants them to articulate faith in Jesus themselves. And it's a very clever question Matthew includes here because it kind of jump, jumps out of us as, as readers and asks, do we believe Jesus? Do we have faith? It's possible to read these miracles in chapters 8 and 9 over these last few weeks and, and miss the point that Jesus is asking whether we believe him as well. It's even possible to be part of a church, to enjoy the church community, to, to find even Jesus' teaching interesting and stimulating. But there becomes a point where Jesus asks, do you believe this yourself? Are you just sitting on the sidelines spectating, or do you believe what I can promise? One of the things I love about this chapter when I looked at it is that faith often looks very weak, very fragile. I mean, the man whose daughter dies, he, he's broken, as he would be. He's just desperate. He's out of options. 
So he comes to Jesus. The woman is kind of superstitious. She believes that touching the garment will heal her. But their weak and flawed faith are exemplary responses. See, what counts most of all is that you come to Jesus, you believe. It may sometimes feel that you're just hanging on. Sometimes your faith feels so defective. But what counts is that you have faith, you trust Jesus. In some ways, that would be a good place to end this morning. Um, Without the need for our third point, that Jesus' kingdom is rejected by some. But the passage doesn't end there. Um, It ends with the Pharisees' response in verse 34. They say this, It is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. Now, the the Pharisees were a group of religious leaders, and um, they're like the guys at a party that you just cannot please. I mean, everyone else has a good time, but they complain about the music being too loud, the food wasn't good enough, and they didn't like the guests. I mean, Jesus does all these wonderful things, and rather than acknowledging what he's done, they say he's working for the devil. And as I was preparing, verse 34 was awkward because it kind of brings a bit of a sour note on what is otherwise an encouraging chapter. And to be honest, I thought about just ignoring it, but I knew some of you guys might pull me up on it, so I thought I'd better look at it. But actually, the more I was forced to look at it, I saw what Matthew was doing. I think it's a vital component. Why is that? Well, it's showing us the danger of not making the paradigm shift Jesus demands. I know you enjoyed my story about Galileo earlier, and um, there's more Galileo to come, because... When uh, the circumstances are right for a paradigm shift like Galileo, when there is evidence that changes our fundamental assumptions, we can have one or two responses. Either you kind of go with the paradigm shift and you say, look, I I was wrong, you were right, and you're willing to change your whole perspective. Or you try and explain things using your existing framework, no matter how ridiculous they sound. You know, when Galileo presented his telescope and his findings that the the moon had craters and imperfections, some people, most people, refused to believe it. In fact, some people said that there are only craters on the moon because there's kind of marks on the lens of the telescope. And so that when people were looking through, they thought they were seeing craters, but it was really the marks on the telescope. Crazy. Others, like one professor of philosophy in one of the leading Italian universities, refused to look into the telescope, maintaining that philosophy had proved categorically that the moon was perfect and spherical. And that's what the Pharisees do. They force a ridiculous conclusion. I mean, interestingly, just as an aside, they don't notice this. They don't dispute that Jesus did these miracles. They can't dispute that. Everyone saw it. So they have to reach for another explanation. They have to say that Jesus' power is from the devil. And their response shows to us the deceit of the human heart, doesn't it? We can be so wedded to our ways of thinking that when Jesus presents a new paradigm, it's rejected because it doesn't fit with how we like the world to be. And because of this, 
Jesus' mission to bring his kingdom to the world will come at great personal cost to himself. The very fact that his kingdom is so different will cause some people to violently oppose it. So that at the end of Mark's gospel, people are calling for this king to be crucified. And Jesus knows this. Every time Jesus declares his kingdom, takes him one step closer to the point where he will be declared worthy of death. Every time Jesus extends his hands to heal others, takes him one step closer to his hands being extended on the cross. But remarkably, Jesus chooses to do it, even though it will cost him his life. Why does he do it? Well, it's through this opposition, through his death, that he brings an even greater healing than we see in these chapters. See, there's a there's a wordplay in the original um, that we often miss in our English. That the word for healed is exactly the same word as the word for saved. And so you can read in verse 22 that your faith has saved you, or that the woman was saved. And it reveals to us what Jesus is doing here. It's, um, what he's doing here is also a picture of what he will do to all his people through his death on the cross. See, because of the cross, he will lift his people from physical and spiritual death. Because of the cross, he heals our spiritual uncleanness so that we are spotless. Because of the cross, he saves us from our spiritual blindness so we can see him clearly. See, the events in this chapter are a paradigm shift. And the greatest part of this paradigm shift is that this king, with all his power, gives up his life so that people like us can be brought into his kingdom. Let's pray. When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him and he asked them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we praise and thank you for this ministry of the Lord Jesus. Thank you that by his touch, the extension of his hand, he rose this girl from death, opened these blind eyes, healed this woman of her bleeding. Please, our Heavenly Father, increase our view of Jesus so that we see his kingdom for what it is. Forgive us when we try and fit him into our categories. Help us to be those who listen to him as he is. And we pray, Heavenly Father, for our community here that we would be those who respond like these blind men and say, yes, Lord, we believe. Please, Father, help those of us who are finding that particularly difficult at the moment, perhaps struggling to go on, perhaps struggling to express faith. Please, would these words be an encouragement to continue, to hold on to it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.